0: So we're going to we're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 6 tonight. We looked at the reason why we have corporate prayer meetings like this. That's how we started this series off on prayer. We looked at that from Romans, then we looked at the the catechism on what prayer is. Last time, it sounds funny to say, but last year, we looked at the, the prayer of Daniel in chapter 9 of Daniel, and we're going to actually reference that again tonight, and I think you're going to see some similarities between Daniel's prayer and Solomon's prayer. I have been long fascinated with Second Chronicles chapter 6 and the prayer of Solomon, Is so richly theological and instructive for us in how to approach God in prayer in a theological and very practical manner. And so, as we look to this, I hope that we're able to pick it out. I'm going to just simply walk through the verses with you, and I'm going to ask questions for us to just discuss. And so, um, this is when the temple has been built, and Solomon is going to pray for the dedication of the temple. In many ways, this is the high watermark of Israel's history. This is their peak moment. I want you to notice in verse 12 what happens. It says this, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hand. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had it set in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. How would you describe these two verses? If you could give it a summary of one word or two words, what would you say is going on in this introduction to his prayer? Well, he is humble. He did go to his knees. Okay. And he showed humbleness to his
1: his his God,
0: his Father. Absolutely, there's humility in him and and bowing before the Lord. Yeah. Any other insights? He's being an example for the people. Oh, that's yeah. That's really good. yeah. That's right. There's reverence. platform is the in the court stands on that. This was not a spontaneous prayer. Yeah, I actually I titled this section Preparation for Prayer. He's fulfilling his kingly duties. What I see is is his representation of the people of Israel to God on their behalf in his prayer. Absolutely. Now think about that for a second, and and let me just remind you of Daniel's prayer. In Daniel chapter 9, we read this. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Do you see any similarity between Daniel and Solomon there? And just general ones. Solomon's not fasting in ashes. He, it's a very ornate thing that's taking place with Solomon. He's built this structure specifically for this prayer. He's elevated so that people can see him. But do you still, and, and Daniel, you, you see it in a totally different circumstances, in exile, away from it. But... There is a common connection between the two. What is it? That they're doing something to prepare? That's absolutely it. They're preparing for this time of fellowship and communion with God. And so I think that that's important. What what does that teach us about prayer in general when we go to pray to the Lord? Say it again. Our posture often reflects our heart. Yeah, posture, and it doesn't have to be a physical posture, right? It could be the posture, our attitude, and yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: That we need to give it more thought than just. It's something that you had said uh, during one of the disciples when you went to meeting back.
0: Oh, when I was in a class.
1: Somebody paused and you thought well does he need help or something or thought we the it's something that
0: we need we always need to think about that's yeah
1: where we're going to
0: that's right yeah it's almost as if you think about it in this way is that there's a there's a moment of a collection of our thoughts before we go into prayer
1: also see it not quite as outspoken by Solomon, but there are two words that catch my attention, and that is, turn and seek. It's an attitude of his presence to God, and it's an attitude of his heart as a result of how he's physically and emotionally spiritually in tune, and trying to be understanding of what God's will
0: is. Yeah, that's a good thought. And hang on to that idea of Daniel turning, because Solomon's going to tell us why Daniel turns. So we see he prayed, or prepared for his prayer. So our first lesson is this, we should prepare our hearts and our minds before we go into prayer as well. It's, it's, there's those spontaneous prayers, and we're called to pray without ceasing. Um, but I think that there's, there's times for us to prepare our hearts for prayer in many different ways. Now, if you look at the actual prayer, it begins in verses 14 and 15. I want you to think through what we've discussed And I want you to put categorize this for me. Verse 14, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. How would you, when we, when we think about like those elements that come out in prayer, what element of prayer is this? It's adoration. He's adoring the Lord for who the Lord is. Now, what are some of the, the things that come out of this section? Specific attributes or characteristics of God? Pardon? Faithfulness. faithfulness. Yeah. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. That speaks of God's faithfulness to his people. There's only one God. Yeah, it's an interesting word that's there where it says there is no God like <coughs> Excuse me. There is no God like you. It literally means nothing is in existence. There is no other God in existence. And he clarifies that to say in the heavens and the earth. What else is there other than the heavens and the earth? Nothing. That's encompassing of all that exists. So he begins by stating the oneness of God. What is the Shema that Israel is supposed to declare in Deuteronomy 6.4? The Lord our God is one. And he begins this prayer with a statement. That the Lord our God is one. He is unique. He is alone, God. There's something else that we see in these, and that is this it's the God of Israel. This is a God that has made himself known to a people and has relation with them. That's an amazing insight that Solomon gives us for prayer there, is that he actually acknowledges that God is a relational God. That he calls a people to himself. In fact, at the beginning, or at the end of verse 15, he speaks of a people that followed David, and that kept with David. As a special people, you remember the time of David's kingship, it was full of turmoil. There was constant insurrection against David, and people had a choice. Do we follow Absalom, or do we follow David? Do we follow Saul, or do we follow David? But there was those that stayed faithful with with David. We see that he is a God that reveals himself in this. Not only a relational God, but a God that reveals himself, reveals his will, that he keeps his promises that he is trustworthy. So let me ask you this. How does this inform our own prayers? How many of you can just start rattling off, off the top of your head, attributes and using all sorts of different colorful poetic language in describing the attributes of God? Just off the top of your head. I can't either. What is this? So draw the connection. What is Solomon, how does Solomon, before he even utters a word, what does he do? He's preparing. And then when he goes into prayer, he begins to describe God. That took thought, that took some thinking on his part.
1: That's why the unsaved person has no concept, and so many times they reject God and say that He doesn't even exist. Mm. That's something that baffles me how they can even think
0: of it. Yeah, they suppress the truth. That's right. Look at verses 16 and 17. I want you to put, it, put this into a category. And by the way, this is him praying a prayer. We're, we're looking at it analytically, just as a helpful guide to us. I don't know that, that Solomon was thinking adoration, supplication, confession. I don't know that he was thinking those things. But we can, we can see those categories here. So look at verse 16. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my laws, you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. How would you categorize that? Yeah, he's asking God, he's bringing his request to God now. And what exactly is he asking for? This is a tricky one.
1: He's asking for faithfulness in the servant in the future kings that serve on the throne to be faithful to God. And then he's recognizing because he said, "Let your word be confirmed, which is have spoken to your servant David." He's even looking beyond that to probably the future king that was to come.
0: Exactly. Solomon's not just merely asking, God, keep me in power. He's asking the Lord actually that he and his descendants would be what? Faithful. He's asking the Lord not for power, not for prestige. The Lord gives him all of that. But he's asking the Lord, let me be faithful And let someone on your throne, the sons of David, be faithful as well. You think about that. That is an interesting prayer. Do you ever pray that the Lord would keep you faithful? Is that part of our prayer life? Lord, by your grace, I'm saved by grace through faith. And that faith is the gift of grace, right? But how is it that the Lord keeps us is through faith by grace? So if one falls away, we we believe they never knew truly knew the Lord. But if they don't fall away, why is it that they didn't fall away? God's grace. He's asking for the Lord's grace to be upon him to be faithful.
1: Um, says you shall not lack a man to sit before me in the throne of Israel there was never a lack of availability as far as people are concerned but then Solomon uh, here goes on to specifically say how those people are to be before God and he said it faithful there was never a lack of people it was faithful people
0: yeah that's a good point there was a lack of faithful people Yeah, absolutely. You look at verse 18 through 21. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That's an amazing statement that he says about this temple that that is the center of Israel's religion and their faith it all centered around the temple and what does he acknowledge uh, can you and Solomon's temple was the greatest temple built it was ornate it was beautiful it was massive and as he stands before it as this now has surpassed the tabernacle what's he say this can't contain you the heavens and the earth can't contain you much less this house it's an amazing statement he goes on in verse 19 yet Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen, from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. How would you classify this? Okay. Okay. Do you see a little bit of a mixture of adoration and supplication? And request in this? Yeah, I think so. What attributes is he stressing? Yeah, tease that out. How? How is holiness? Where do you see holiness? else you see in there? Any other attribute of God that is in that verse, specifically verse 18? What was the adoration for tonight? Go ahead. Yeah, it's omnipresent. So we see his transcendence, and that's a word that means that God is separated from us. But then later on in the verse, in the verses following, we see his imminence. That is, that he is with us. So you see these two ideas that seem to be that God is wholly other, he is unique, he is separated, but that he hears our prayers and that he actually comes to dwell with mankind. And it's amazing here is that this is at the temple, which is a place used for sacrifice. It's also a place for prayer. And that teaches us, in light of that, that God is wholly different, but yet He makes a place possible for people to pray to Him. What does that teach us about God and His character? He's looking after us? But what about that He desires for us to do what? To come and pray to Him. That's an amazing statement. The highest thing you can say about God, His transcendence, and then in the very next verse, you, you provided this place for us to commune with you. And we can't even comprehend you, but you have made yourself known in some way that we can commune and know you. What a great God we have that calls us to pray, desires for us to pray, reveals himself to us, makes himself known to us so that we will pray. Can you feel the weight of that idea that we should be people of prayer in light of that?
1: You see it, and I don't know whether this is relevant or not either, but... In the very first um, moments after creation, you see that the Lord is communing and desiring fellowship with man in the garden.
0: He makes himself known to Adam.
1: Yeah, said and that's really this—that's really what his desire has been—is that fellowship and that communion, and here is is
0: really evident of that. You know, that's actually relevant to bring up the garden because the temple was designed to look like Eden with the, 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 the uh, designs that were inside because God's presence was there. And I think that that reminds us of Eden that God walked with man and fellowship with man. And so he creates this, he designs this temple to be built To where he can once again walk with his people. Verses 22 through 31, you're going to see these following themes. Before I read the verses, let me just give you the themes. He's going to pray for sins against neighbor, he's going to pray for justice, he's going to pray for when they're defeated in war, he's going to pray for when they have no rain, when they have famine. When they experience pestilence, before we read the verses, let me ask why would those specific things come upon Israel? Disobedience. Because they were not walking in the ways that the Lord had commanded them to walk. What section of Scripture do we see that most clearly from? In Deuteronomy much like Daniel's prayer, where Daniel's prayer is in light of what we see in in the book of Deuteronomy. Solomon's is as well. Jesus, I think, quoted Deuteronomy more than anything. Such a clear book of interpreting the rest of the Old Testament in, in parts of the New Testament. So let us look at this. Verse 22: If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteousness by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So, what is Solomon asking the Lord to do? Uphold justice. Uphold justice, yeah, just real simple, right? What is the king supposed to do? But he's asking the Lord to do it. When people come to you, Lord, would you bring justice? It's going to be interesting because later Solomon's going to acknowledge in this prayer, we all sin. Was Solomon a sinner? Yeah. Look at verses 24 through 25. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. Why would Israel lose a battle? Disobedience, right? They had sinned against God, so then they would lose in battle. God told them, if you do this, then you will experience this. What's the beauty of verses 24 and 25? It's a provision for repentance. Yeah. He, he offers forgiveness, right? Look at the next verses. Verse 26. It says this, when Heaven is shut up, and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they walk, and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. What is this prayer about? Asking for forgiveness. Notice the words, when you afflict them. So what is Solomon acknowledging in that phrase, when you afflict them? For their yeah. And that the Lord's discipline on them is actually the means of what? Bring them Bringing them to repentance. Repentance to ask for forgiveness. So the Lord disciplines for the purpose of repentance. The Lord disciplines for sin. He brings judgment. Look at verse 28. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer "...whatever plea is made by any man, or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow, and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of the children of mankind." that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to your fathers. What is, as you, as you read this section and, and the previous section, what does this entire section from verse 22 through 31 assume of God, an attribute of God? All of these things that they're praying for, justice, Weather, disease, nations.
1: You say the word all the time,
0: sovereign. That God is sovereign. It assumes in this prayer that God is sovereign, that God can bring rain, that God can turn one nation against a people at his own disposal, that there is disease, that there is famine, that God brings and puts upon a people. So this all assumes, one thing, is that God is sovereign. It also assumes that the Lord rebukes his people. And Solomon here acknowledges that God is in control, but in acknowledging that God is sovereign and God is in control, he also says something about man. Man is what? Culpable and responsible for their sin. How those two things come together, we don't know. Scripture just says is. Now, as you're looking at this, how might this section inform our prayers when we face difficult circumstances? Say, injustice, persecution, natural disasters, disease. Have we experienced any of those things? How does it inform our own prayer life as we look at Solomon and how Solomon handles these theological issues? How might that inform your prayer life? (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, And the thing is, is that We live in a sin-fallen world. The creation itself groans to be renewed. We live in the consequences of sin. There's another theological point here. Verse 29. I tried to emphasize this. Let me read it again. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. What is the theological point made there? I alone am responsible for my actions. You think about, has this nation largely rejected God, our nation that we live in? Absolutely. And we pay the consequences of that collectively, right? When wicked laws are put in place, we actually face that. We have to deal with that. It hurts us if you're taxed to fund an abortion, right? That that, that hurts our soul, that that, that affects our own private property. So wicked laws can affect a people totally. But the prayer here is, Lord, may those that, that repent, may you grant them repentance. The nation might be against you. But you have your people there. Hear their prayers. Think about it in Ezekiel chapter 18, where Ezekiel says, May this proverb no longer be heard in Israel that the fathers sin, and now the children's teeth are set on edge. And what the point was was the children of Israel in exile were saying, We're in exile because our fathers sinned. And God says, no, you're responsible too. You're responsible as well. Let's go to verse 32. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, your people Israel, this is speaking to God that he has a people Israel. When a foreigner comes from a far country for the sake of your great name, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that, the phrase in order that is what type of statement? Purpose. Purpose statement. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. As do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So what is his request here? What is the request specifically from Solomon? Yeah, see people saved. Gentiles, is that kind of surprising? To hear that prayer come from a king of Israel talking about the people of God and Israel being God's people, that Solomon at the dedication of the temple is actually asking for Gentiles to come and know God? You think about the book of Acts, the first few chapters The 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 disciples are trying to can't get it through their head that they actually need to go out to Gentiles. But here Solomon is praying that they might come. What was the most grand aspect of Solomon's reign? It was the temple, right? That's what defined Solomon's reign was the temple. And here he specifically desires that what David had planned and Solomon himself executed would not be for his glory, but for whose glory? It would be for God's glory. When they come here because of your great name. There's something else that we should note is the temple and the land required obedience. When the people persisted in sin, eventually the Lord sends foreign invaders not to worship but to what? Destroy. Destroy. So perhaps in this, there's a veiled request in this that the people of God would be faithful and that the Lord would use that as a shining light to attract foreigners. Think about this. How does this affect our corporate prayers? You think of one of the things that we pray for often is what? Unity? Then we pray for unity. We pray for faithfulness. We pray that we might what? Love one another. Why? Because that is a testimony to the love that Christ has for us. That people might see that and come to see his great name. Do we pray for the lost? Solomon prayed for the lost. Verse 34. If your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and, you, and they pray to you toward this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Now this is a prayer here that the Lord would protect his people. And Before, it was if we get defeated in battle... This prayer is different. What's this prayer? If we, if we get defeated in battle and we, and we repent, will you hear our prayers and forgive us? This is a different prayer. It's about battle, but what's the, what's the emphasis? The, the Lord sent them. They're not being presumptuous. Now, even though the Lord promises to win their battles for them, here is, Lord, protect us when you send us out. Look at verse 36. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive, and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause, And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Why did Daniel pray towards Jerusalem? You see it right here. Solomon prays when your people are in what? They're in captivity. It's foreshadowing what they're going to experience in their future. When they're in captivity and they turn towards your holy dwelling, will you hear their voice? Why did Daniel pray towards Jerusalem? So So that God would hear him. Absolutely.
1: That place was holy from the very onset of the Jewish people and the promise of Abraham, because that's the exact mountain and place where he offered up his son.
0: Um, absolutely now there's something missing in all of these verses there's a continual asking of what for if we do this will you forgive where's the mention of sacrifice it's not there Now, the temple was a place of sacrifice. We know that. But you don't see sacrifice written in there at all. Anywhere in any of these verses. What you see is when your people pray and ask for forgiveness, will you forgive them? What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about forgiveness? that the Lord does forgive, that the Lord is merciful, and that the Lord would provide a means by which he could forgive people. It says, Now, O God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. I want, to, I want to read you just a quick background to that in First Chronicles 22. Notice the language. Beginning in verse 6, 1 Chronicles 22, it says this, Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of what? Rest. Listen to Solomon's prayer. And now arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. His presence was a sign, the Lord's presence with his people was a sign that he had given them rest, that he was pleased with his people. What happens in Ezekiel with the temple? The presence of the Lord leaves it, And the presence of the Lord does not return to the temple until Christ walks into it. And now that the temple is destroyed, Christ is with his temple, his people. Pleased with his people. Satisfied with his people. He says, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So Solomon is asking the Lord to keep his promises in keeping a son of David on the throne. Didn't God promise David an eternal throne? Why is Solomon praying for something God already promised? God's sovereignty doesn't drive us to passivity. God's sovereignty drives us to action and prayer and to pray and ask for those things that he has promised to give us. It also shows us that the temple here was not an end, but ultimately pointed to something greater, that God himself would dwell with his people through the flesh of David. This is all pointing us to what we will be fully realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as you reflect on this prayer, and if you think back to Daniel's prayer, are there some things that you can implement into your own prayer life? I think so. And what does Solomon and Daniel's preparation for prayer teach us? Maybe to prepare our hearts for prayer. And finally, should we be actively be praying for the lost and that God would use his people's faithfulness as a testimony to our sovereign Lord? Absolutely. I would encourage you to go back and read this prayer. To me, it's the high watermark of prayers in the Old Testament. It's, I've, I've long been fascinated with it, especially where Solomon prays for foreigners to come to the temple. There's much to be learned in this and much for us to implement into our, our own prayer life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how it guides us and directs us in, in all areas, including in our prayer life and how your word teaches us to pray, how your word causes us to reflect on who you are, on your, your character and your nature. It also reminds us that we are sinful and needy people in need of forgiveness. We are in need of a great Savior that brings his presence to his people. Father, may we be, by your grace, a people of prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.